Welcome to Europe Listens from the European Council on Foreign Relations, a podcast where we listen to thought leaders outside of Europe on the global challenges we face and how they see Europe's role and responsibilities. Hello and welcome back to Europe Listens, brought to you by the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Raphael Loss, ECFR's Coordinator for Pan-European Data Projects. And I'm Jana Pulierin, Head of ECFR's Berlin Office. Europe Listens is all about ideas and perspectives that often receive too little attention in European discussions. Last episode, we heard from Shona Aminath, Minister of the Environment, Climate Change and Technology in the Maldives. She shared her country's experience of the climate crisis and what she sees as the priorities and potential problems for multilateral climate cooperation and for the UN Climate Forum, COP. We discussed, in particular, the long overdue need for action on climate financing. In other words, how to best manage and direct funds to support countries affected by climate change, to help them recover from climate-related disasters, protect against extreme weather events and advance their clean, green transition. So today, we're especially excited to hear from one of the most important voices in the climate finance conversation, Avinash Persot. Born in Barbados, Avinash has held a number of senior positions in finance, public policy and academia. To give you just a few highlights of his impressive resume, he worked as managing director of State Street Bank, the world's largest institutional investor, and later as global head of currency and commodity research at JP Morgan. In 2008, he joined the UN Commission of Experts on International Financial Reform and was later appointed co-chair of the OSCD Emerging Market Network. He has also been a visiting scholar at the International Monetary Fund and a visiting researcher at the European Central Bank. Today, Avinash is Emeritus Professor of Gresham College in the UK. He's also a special envoy to the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley. It is working closely with Prime Minister Motley that Avinash has designed one of the boldest and most convincing proposals for climate finance, the Bridgetown Initiative. The initiative was announced in Bridgetown, Barbados in September 2022 and quickly became one of the most talked about items at COP27. Before the summit was out, the plan had the backing of French President Emmanuel Macron, head of the IMF Kristalina Georgieva, John Kerry, US President Biden's special envoy for climate, as well as finance executives and climate activists. In June 2023, a summit for a new global finance pact, co-organized by Prime Minister Motley and President Macron, will put the Bridgetown Initiative top of the agenda. All of this makes Avinash an especially busy man, so we're really delighted he found the time to join us today. Avinash, welcome to Europe Listens. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So Avinash, the Bridgetown Initiative has really got a lot of different people excited and hopeful. We'd love to get into the architecture of the plan shortly, but first, perhaps, you can give us a bit of background. When did you get to know and start working with Prime Minister Motley? Well, I, I don't think she's going to forgive me for revealing our ages. Um, but I, I first met her 
uh, probably 35 odd years ago um, at, uh, at the London School of Economics, where we were both studying. She was doing law and I was studying economics. And we were both part of a, um, a Afro-Caribbean society. Um, I was born in Barbados um, and left there when I was about seven years old and grew up in the UK. So that's how we met and we stayed in touch. Um, long period of, of not working together. And then when she became Minister for Economic Affairs in Barbados and was slated to um, write uh, and give uh, the first budget um, for, for, for her, she called me up and asked me if I'd come and help her uh, prepare and uh, deliver that budget. And so that's how we started back. And that was some 14 odd years ago. So, Avinash, was climate financing a focus in your work together from the start? To be completely honest, no. It would be, lo be lovely to say yes. But we were very much focused on, on development issues. Barbados has been significantly impacted by climate change, but not by, as some of the island countries, uh, the neighboring islands, by severe hurricanes. We've been impacted by rising sea levels, by increasing drought, uh, increased flooding, but not by big sort of set piece hurricanes. And so our focus was really on development. It was only after the hurricane season in 2017 when the Caribbean was hit almost unprecedentedly by two Category 5 hurricanes in the space of two weeks that she encouraged me to uh, go off to Dominica to try and help them in their recovery after Hurricane Maria. And it was then that I really began to understand um, the, the, the impact of climate change, the consequences and the real challenges countries were having in dealing with it. So it's after this devastating hurricane season, you're tasked with helping Dominica. But that seems to have led to a much wider agenda. Well, the Caribbean, uh, like a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, a big chunk of Asia and the Pacific, are on the front line of climate change. Basically, the countries between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. That's a belt around the equator, around 15 degrees either side of the equator. That's where temperatures uh, are reaching the highest levels and sea levels also rising to the highest levels. And so we are literally you know, sinking and drowning and burning up. And we're looking at the rest of the world because this group of countries, uh, some, some 40% of the world's population, did not contribute to global warming. Global warming is caused not even by current emissions, but the stock, you know, the, the, the last 200 odd years of emissions, because one of the dangers of, of, of greenhouse gases is when they go up there, they stay up there, sometimes for thousands of years. So, um, the, so we're there sitting here burning up and drowning and wondering why is the world Why are those who contributed this? Why are those who have got wealthy by contributing to this not doing enough? Um, and so we realized that um, 
that finance was part of the problem and that there was no point just standing there complaining, uh, shouting and trying to condemn what was happening. You had to go and come up with a solution. You had to build a coalition. You had to convince those who could do uh, something about it to do something about it. And you can't do that just by blaming people. You have to try and build something that they understand, they appreciate, and they're willing to participate in. So that's what we said about writing the Bridgetown Initiative. That's a really fascinating and moving origin story of this project. I'd love to dive now into the details of the Bridgetown Initiative. From what I understand, it's a three-point plan. Can you talk us through it? Well, because we experience climate change, uh, we're, we're at this sort of, uh, at, at this point um, We, we understand some of its differences. Uh, a lot of people tend to mix climate change up together, but there is loss and damage from climate. There is climate resilience and adap adaptability, adaptation, and there's climate mitigation. And these are three very different things. And we learned, and, and as we, we were there thinking about how we finance changes, we realize that the amount of money we need is huge. It's about $2 trillion dollars per year. But there is a way of getting it if we divide up the different tasks into the different kinds of finance most suited to those tasks. So, for example, uh, we, we have three buckets, and that's, I think, where your, your three sort of parts of Bridgetown come from. The first budget bucket is those things for which there are revenues attached. You can make money with a solar farm or a wind turbine or hydroelectric power. You can make money selling electric cars. You can make money with sustainable agriculture. So there's a bunch of stuff for which there are revenues attached. And the task is to find ways in which we can capture those revenues and we can get people excited about those revenues. The second bucket is those things for which there are no revenues, but they are savings. So when I build a stronger seawall defense, um, I'm not getting paid to do it, but it does mean that my flooding uh, is uh, so much reduced that I'm saving money in the future. When I improve my flood defenses, I improve my irrigation, I improve um, my water systems, all of those things don't really make me money, but they save me money. And that means I can borrow money for that. Now, because I have to become resilient, much of that agenda, much of the stuff that has no revenue but has savings is all about climate adaptation and climate resilience. So I can borrow money for climate resilience, pay it back in the future with all the savings I'm going to be making, And so, again, that becomes an easier thing to finance. And that leaves the final bucket. It's the smallest bucket, and it's the most difficult bucket to fill. And that bucket is those things with no revenues, no savings. It's climate loss and damage. It's some of the, the just transition issues. If you're going to turn away from from uh, coal mining and coal power generation, what happens to that mining town where the main employer is the coal mine? 
and the people are age 40 and 50, and they're not really going to transition to another job that easily. So that's in addition to things like, you know, a hurricane destroying all the low-income housing or ripping the roofs off the majority of your homes. So that loss and damage, that needs to be funded. You can't get the private sector involved in that. There's no revenues there. You can't borrow for that because every time you borrow for loss and damage, you're just going to increase and increase your debt. We will be sunk under oceans of debt before the sea levels actually rise up. You've got to get new taxes, new global revenues, new global taxes, things like a, a fossil fuel tax, a methane emissions tax, a shipping tax for emissions of, of the shipping industry, things like that. So those are the three buckets, three different ways of financing. And this is the way we can unlock the $2 trillion a year we need. Let's talk a little more about loss and damage and those oceans of debt. How do you want to change international finance to better support countries and populations on the climate front line? Well, you know, that, that's where we are most uncompromising. Um, we say that you cannot fund loss and damage by debt. And we are, you know, we, we are fighting. I'm a member of the transition committee uh, to establish the loss and damage fund. And there are those who don't want to to contribute to that fund, who don't want to support new global taxes, who are saying, oh, maybe you can borrow money for that. And we're saying, no, if every time we got hit, we had to borrow money for it, we would be sunk under oceans of debt. The other thing that's being geeked upon us is the idea of insurance. So, you know, rich countries, especially those where their, their big insurance companies are familiar with floods that will lose you 0.1%, have basically been saying to us, you know, your problem is you're not insured. You need more insurance. And I mean, firstly, there's the, the, there's the moral issue. I mean, this is insurance of where victim pays. This is where someone is pelting bricks into our back garden and telling us when we complain, oh, you should get some insurance for it. Um, so, you know, firstly, the, the, there's the moral issue of having to pay for insurance against the actions of others. But then there's the other thing that this climate change is an uninsurable event. It's a rising risk with a rising correlation. Any insurer who tried to insure that would go bust. Now, insurance is done every year. So they will insure you this year. They'll insure us next year. They'll insure us maybe the year after. But then they'll stop at some point. And by the time they've stopped is the time we would be lost if we hadn't found an alternative long before. And so we're arguing we need to borrow for resilience, but we need cash grants to pay for current loss and damage. We will borrow to make ourselves resilient to save future loss and damage. But current loss and damage, we need grants. Now, the, the, the oil and gas industry earned $4 trillion last year, $4 trillion. We only need 2% of that, and it would cover the entire loss and damage problem every year. Now, 1% would cover half, And it would allow perhaps other sectors like the shipping sector, like the agricultural sector, who also contribute to be making a, making a, a contribution. So two or three sectors putting up one to two percent of their annual revenues would solve loss and damage. And that's what we need. And in terms of mechanisms for financing resilience projects, how does the international financial system currently operate? And what changes 
does the Bridgetown Initiative want to implement? So the multilateral development banks uh, basically have two types of, of instruments. They're the re- for, for the really poor, for the very poor countries, they have um, uh, a mixture of cheap loans and grants. Um, and that made sense when they were developing these instruments. But because of globalization, which has converged countries, but diverged um, poverty within countries, now 70% of the world's poor don't live in the poorest countries. And some of the most climate vulnerable people don't live in the poorest countries. And so we need to bring forward investment in resilience using cheap lending. But it's going to be a little bit different and different countries than those who currently benefit from that mixture of low-cost loans and grants, uh, which is called concession lending. So I call it super long-term low-cost. So we want uh, to be able to borrow at 50 years or 75 years or 100 years. Now, how did Europe pay for the war? They didn't pay for it with a 10-year loan. And you're asking us to make ourselves resilient in this war against climate change uh, in a permanent way. So we need super long-term borrowing. Uh, and we need that to be at the same rate at which the, the big development banks borrow at. Now, remember, they're AAA-rated institutions. We're not. We're a B B-rated institution. We borrow at 9 or 10%. South Africa borrows at 14%. Zambia at 26%. The World Bank is a AAA-rated institution. It borrows at 3% or 4%. And so we need them to transfer their borrowing power to us so we can invest in resilience for the, for the future. So if I got this right, your idea is to move beyond a model of individual rich countries, paying out to individual poorer countries but instead to work with the existing international banking system? I wouldn't put it that way. Uh, you know, if anyone was offering me $2 trillion dollars in a check, I would gladly receive it. The thing is, they're not. And not only are they not, the total amount of aid in the entire world spread over every single thing, not just climate, the other 16 sustainable development goals is $200 billion. It's, it's one-tenth of what I need for climate. And those aid budgets, they're not getting bigger. They're getting smaller. They're double counting their aid budgets. They're, they're, they're counting support and assistance for Ukraine as aid. They, the, this, this scope of aid and this, this check writing is nowhere near what we need. So what we're saying is, yes, I could ask for $2 trillion dollars a year, but no government's getting elected to write big checks to foreigners. Governments today are getting elected to deport foreigners, not to fund them. So we have to come up with another way. And I wouldn't say it's about working with capitalism. It is actually about changing capitalism. So when we say that we need to get the private sector investing in emerging markets and developing countries, the only way we can do that is by changing the pricing system. By taking the market risk for investing in those countries and eliminating it, guaranteeing that people will get the same sort of returns um, if they invested in an emerging market versus a rich country. 
and the international public sector needs to make that guarantee, that will drive the investment. And it's worth making that guarantee because the whole planet will benefit from that. And when I say that we need long-term, low-cost money for investment, that's money, yes, we're borrowing, yes, but we're not borrowing at the market rate. We're borrowing at a different rate. So we're changing market pricing to deliver a social result that will save humanity and the planet. Is that capitalism? I would say that is saying capitalism has got us into this mess. How do we change capitalism? How do we redirect the pricing? Capitalism is based on price signals. We are about changing those price signals so that the world, um, saving the world, has a much greater value. It also seems to me like the Bridgetown Initiative shifts the dynamics of the climate finance conversation and that those countries most impacted by climate change become agents of a solution and not just victims of the problem. Well, I do think that, you know, I think it's, a, it's a partly a, a, a cultural characteristic of people from the Caribbean is that we, we don't want to be medicants. We don't want to be beggars. Um, we have a problem. It's a global problem. It was not contributed or created by us. Um, we are the victims of it. And we've come up with a global solution, which does not beg, but it actually makes everyone better off. talk a little more about the role of the private sector in this. How would the Bridgetown Initiative leverage this private capital and eliminate private investor risk? So around 81% of all um, projects that, that are in climate mitigation, and by that I mean things like um, low carbon, so solar power, uh, hydroelectric, um, wind turbines, 81% in the rich countries are financed already by the private sector. It makes money. It makes good economic sense. The costs have fallen, returns are good. In the developing countries, 86% is funded by the government. And why is that? That's because the risks, the currency risk of investing in those countries is very high. Europe issues a, its own reserve currency, the euro. When things are tough, they can issue and print more euros, uh, and people want their safe haven assets. When things are tough in South Africa, people don't want more South African rand. They want less of it. Uh, and so we get a tremendous amount of currency risk and currency volatility, which means that the cost of capital for a solar farm in, in, in South Africa is about 12 or 14 percent when it's 2% or 3% in Germany. And that difference, that much bigger cost, is why the private sector is not coming into the emerging world. And so we need an, an institution that will guarantee the currency risk. Basically say, you can get a, a euro-type return for investing in a South African solar farm. And this agency will manage the currency risk uh, and, um, and the, the investor will get euros and the country will get rands. 
Um, and that will dramatically increase private, private investors moving into South Africa, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, all these places that we need the green transition to take place. We need the green transition to take place everywhere, but in those places first. Uh, and I think that's going to be a very important part of, it's a very important part of our toolbox of the Bridgetown Initiative. And yet, I think you find in the climate conversations more broadly, I think people that would argue that capitalism itself is a primary driver of the climate crisis. What would you say to those who argue that we need to do more than just update the financial institutions, that we need instead a whole new economic system? Well, I think that they're saying that, and this will sound rude of me, but they're saying that from the comfortable armchair of a northern country, um, where they can afford to take 10 years to persuade people to change the economic system we've had for the past few hundred years. I don't have that time. I don't have that time. So I'm quite happy for people to make that case. Um, but I also need to find something that would change things now. Um, you know, people, people tend to think that the whole world is burning up and drowning at the same pace. It's not. Between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, the costs of climate, according to the United Nations, is four times greater than elsewhere. In fact, you know, when Germany, for example, had its worst floods in living memory, it impacted GDP by 0.1%. When Dominica got hit 10 years ago by Ophelia, it hit 45% of their GDP. They lost it. And then two years later, four years later, they got hit by Storm Erica, where they lost 96% of GDP. And two years after that, they got hit by Maria, which lost them 226% of GDP. It's a different world we're living in. It's not a world in which we can stand there and say, look, I need to persuade you to change the entire economic system of the past 300 years. I need to find a way of bending that system, of tilting that system, of diverting that system so that we get change now. We don't have time to wait. And in terms of giving voice to that urgency, you spoke earlier about this frontline coalition, extending way beyond Barbados, beyond the Caribbean, to the entire zone of the tropics. Do you think that multinational framework has been a deciding factor in the momentum the Bridgetown Initiative has gained so far? We made a number of political choices, and I can't say that they were all readily accepted. They needed persuasion. You rightfully have brought up the first one. There are those within our coalition who believe that we shouldn't try and attract the private sector, that we shouldn't borrow more from the World Bank, that somehow we must change the system in which rich countries are required to send us money. Um, and, you know, I, I say to them, look, I'm happy for you to make that case and to argue that case. The likelihood of that happening in the next five years is near zero. And I don't have five years to wait. So, you know, that's the way we have dealt and tried to persuade people of this agenda. But not everyone's convinced by a long, long way. Um, uh, the second thing that the coalition issue was that for a long while, we have been uh, in a group, and we still are in a group, of small island developing states. Small island developing states are perhaps hit most hard by climate change. Um, and uh, they have tended to organize together. And I have said, 
you know what? We need a bigger coalition. Because if you add up all of the populations of the smaller island developing states, you get less than 1% of the world's population. And the world is not going to change the global financial system and generate $2 trillion per year for 1% of the world's population. So we have to go beyond small island development states to all of the countries being more impacted by climate change. That includes a lot of the large landlocked African countries. They're not small. They're not islands. Uh, they are developing states. Um, and we basically looked at, the, looked at the world and realized, look, it's this band around the equator. And this band is a big set of countries. They won't change the world for 1%, but they may change the world for 40%. And then the other thing, uh, which has really appealed in, in moving from uh, the position of just small island states to climate vulnerable states, is that if you're not currently a small island developing state, you're not going to become one. But if you're not currently a climate vulnerable country, you will become one unless you are part of our coalition and try and do something about it. And that means that this coalition around climate vulnerability has helped to draw in and bring even people who are not climate vulnerable because they fear becoming so. The initiative was also announced with a strong emphasis on collective action. That feels really important after so many decades of ad hoc, disjointed efforts to address climate change. Well, I think one of the things we, we realized is that sitting here, you know, drowning and burning up uh, and watching the world, basically what we observed is a very interesting thing. Everyone was blaming everybody else. So the developing countries, uh, the industrializing developing countries, were saying, yes, we are emitting a lot today. China, India, Indonesia, South Africa, Vietnam. Yes, we, we are emitting a lot today, but you know what? You did your emissions earlier. You rich countries did your emissions earlier and you became rich because of your emissions. And you want to stop us before we get rich? And the rich countries are saying, right, but the world doesn't have time to wait. If we waited for you to stop your emissions after you've got rich, we would have breached the 1.5 degrees warming of planetary limits. So the rich countries are blaming the new emitters. The new emitters are blaming the rich countries. And we're sitting here in the middle getting trampled on by these elephants. Uh, and so we're saying, look, okay, we need to come up with a deal in which no one's blaming anybody else, but actually they're all benefiting. That the, in, the industrializing emerging markets are getting a flow of investment at cheap rates that will boost their economy and finance their green transition. And the rich countries will get huge investment opportunities for their capital and their technologies. And they'll also be benefiting from that as well as a better climate and a better planet. What role do you see for the EU specifically in this, in, in changing the conversation and addressing the climate crisis and working with um, the countries that you discussed so elaborately? The EU individual European nations, how have they responded to your plan so far? Very positively. And uh, we, we have had some good support from the EU. And of course, one of the reasons why we're sitting with, with, with the the transition committee of the loss and damage fund is that the EU was one of the first of the of the major wealthy countries to say yes. You know what? After years of uh, of not agreeing, we're going to support the creation of a loss and damage fund. Now we're still a long way away from managing to achieve all the things we want to achieve, 
Um, but I would say there's support uh, from Europe. There's a positive disposition. I think that there's still not the same level of urgency because although Europe had these heat waves uh, last year, the, the costs of, of climate change are still one quarter or less of what it is elsewhere. And so we're finding that they, they are not moving fast enough on um, supporting us in getting the multilateral development banks, the World Bank, the European banks, the American bank, the Asian bank, the, these development banks, getting them to rapidly expand their lending and lending new instruments, low-cost, long-term instruments, uh, to help finance poor countries being resilient. So we need more help from them on that. We need help from them to agree to our uh, Just Green Transition Financing Trust that will guarantee currency risk and invite private sector investors into emerging markets. We, we haven't had full fulsome support on that as yet. So yes, it's been positive, it's been supportive, but we are a long way from where we need to be and we, we, we need more support from Europe to get us there. Thank you very much also for highlighting kind of what you expect from the Europeans in the future. I think this is a really important message also to those who uh, listen to our podcast. So we spoke earlier about the huge interest and excitement in the Bridgetown Initiative that was generated at COP27. And this June, you'll have a landmark summit on climate financing co-organized by Prime Minister Motley and President Macron. Are you hopeful that the Bridgetown Initiative can actually become reality? You know, an interesting um, transition is occurring, a transition of ownership of ideas. Um, so I was you know, sitting the other day uh, at a meeting on the Paris summit and the ideas, and a number of people were basically lecturing to me what the Bridgetown Initiative was. They were saying, you know, we need a loss and damage fund, uh, uh, climate change is uninsurable, we need the MDBs to lend a lot more for resilience, we need a new type of agency that will guarantee currency risk. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is fantastic. Other people begin to own the ideas, believe it's their own, And that is how a movement wins. It doesn't win if it continues to be associated with me, with Prime Minister Motley, with Bridgetown. It wins because everybody thinks it's their agenda. And I think that's what I'm seeing today. So one of the things I, I've learned about, I've learned from Prime Minister Motley, is how you build an, uh, a coalition and bring more people in. Uh, and, and we want to crowd in other leaders so that so that this isn't just thought of as a, as a Bridgetown initiative, a Motley initiative, a Passord initiative, but really a global initiative. So we're going to be inviting Prime Minister Modi to co-chair, and he's currently the president of the G20, uh, to co-chair the summit. Uh, we're looking to invite Lula, looking to invite a number of African leaders and other Asian leaders. We want this to be a set of progressive global leaders who are pushing a common agenda. And, you know, maybe 12 months later when we've made some progress, people will be able to turn around and say, oh, that was the Bridgetown Initiative. But this transition of ownership, which is occurring, I think is a sign of these ideas being mainstreamed and no longer exciting because they're novel, but exciting because 
they're part of a of a reform movement that has become the mainstream. Well, Avinash, you have our very best of luck in this effort. Um, this really is a formidable project to coordinate all these global powers and this global money to address climate change and to support those countries on the front line in a more sustainable way. Thank you for your work. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a privilege to listen to you. Thank you, Avinash. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege for me. Thanks a lot. Europe Listens is brought to you by the European Council on Foreign Relations and supported by Stiftung Mercator. Our producer is Eliza Epperley. Project coordination by Angela Mera. Sound design and editing by Benjamin Nash.